Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Lever Podcast. My name is John Lawrence and today we will be talking to Derek Wall. Derek is an activist, academic and eco-socialist. He's the author of Giga Blanca Revolutionary Life and Eleanor Ostrom's Rolfs for Radicals. His interests range from eco-socialism, Latin American left-wing politics, Rojava, the commons, to things like left-wing strategy and tactics beyond the market and the state. Today we're going to be discussing climate change, climate activism, and what the hell do we do with a planet that is going to become increasingly difficult for humans and many other species to live on over the next 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you very, very much for coming on and and chatting um, to me today. Firstly, I think I wanted to get into a little bit where your politics come from. You know, what is eco-socialism in your idea? I think we're seeing a lot of interest in climate activism. Climate change is a, is a big, big thing that many people are talking about. And eco-socialist approaches go back for many, many years. I mean, people even argue Marx and Engels, you know, were the original eco-socialists. But I know it's a very broad question to start with, but what is eco-socialism? And what do you think its use or its applications might be for today? Um, I think the simplest definition is to start with John Colville's book, The Enemy of Nature, Mm -hmm. and in that he argues that the enemy of nature is capitalism. So eco-socialism is opposition to a capitalist economic system that tends to inevitably degrade the environment, Mm -hmm. simplify the environment, commodify the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's been concern about the environment for many years. Um, I mean, my kind of initial political activism was when I was a teenager, which is mm-hmm. kind of like early 80s, and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. being concerned about kind of animal rights, you know, kind of seal coals and environment. Yeah. And at that time, you know, you had the emergence of ecology parties, mm-hmm. sort of late 60s, 70s, environmental pressure groups like Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace. Yeah. And you had kind of concern from publications like Limits to Growth that economic growth might be unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So what got me interested in Marxism at a kind of very early age in mm-hmm. the 80s was that um, a Marxist analysis would say that more and more growth is intrinsic to capitalism. I yeah. think Marx talks about accumulate, accumulate is Moses and the prophets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was kind of interesting at the time in Britain I wasn't coming across Marxist organisations that were centrally concerned with the environment mm, mm, mm. but I was coming across the fact that you know Marxist analysis is important for looking at growth and the economy and how that degrades the environment yeah. and what you've had emerging I guess from the kind of 90s as sort of eco-socialist authors and writers um, and initially I think this is something which was quite academic mm-hmm. Um, but as we'll get on to, one of my interests is, is working with Hugo Blanco, the yeah. Latin American revolutionary. And I think we now have a kind of eco-socialism which is potentially more um, activist and based yeah. on changing society. Um, so briefly, you mentioned Marx and Engels. I think if we look at the, the kind of record of Marxists in the 20th century, mm. and, you know, the, the left, right, from anarchists to, you know, kind of Harold Wilson, the whole terrain... <laughs> you know, revolutionary reformist. Generally, people were not on the left concerned with the environment. It yeah. wasn't central. 
Um, I mean, it's interesting that you have like 1992 and the Rio conference, and one of the people who really put it on the agenda for the LF was Fidel Castro. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but you know, whether we look at Trotsky or Stalin or Mao <laughs> or you know Harold Wilson or whatever, not not kind of central in the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. But then, as you mentioned, if we go back and look at Marx and Engels. Surprisingly or not, it, it's central. So mm. you have John Bellamy Foster's yes. Marxist ecology, and he would say that notions of ecology and networks, and particularly this potential metabolic rift between humanity yes. and the rest of nature, and just materialism, mm. you know, that, that maybe you don't have Marxism without ecology, even mm. though the world mm. wasn't mm. coined at the time. Marxism in its very philosophy is very much based on networks, materialism, mm. Mm. and then you know there are contradictions in Marx and Engels, but um, you know there's all sorts of concerns around deforestation, soil erosion, yes. additives, and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what we may be doing is rediscovering something at the kind of heart of the left, which the left on the whole was forgetting in much of the 20th century, mm. though exceptions. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really really important point, and I think. Um, it's something you and I have discussed before, um, and, and we're discussing even before we were talking today. In in the sense of the left, um, has uh, well, the left now? I think you know, with the various organisations we have, mm-hmm. um, is necessarily going through a a period of um, reorientation or rediscovery mm-hmm. of some of these certain things. Old organisations are uh, increasingly finding it difficult to recruit and to build, um, you know, the, the kind of hangover organisations from the, the 70s, the 80s. Um, and we're seeing new forms of activism, new ideas, new ways of working. Um, I mean, at the moment, we, you know, I think we can't, we can't obviously do a podcast on the environment we're talking about without talking about Extinction Rebellion, yeah. for example. Um, and I think one of the really interesting things is the way that, you know, the environment has become such a central concern. And the left has almost lagged behind a little bit in its in its in its ideas. I mean, I, I believe obviously the extinction rebellion thing yeah. is of of of, of the left yeah. it's part yeah. of that. You know, it doesn't come from a you know it, it comes from there are various different strains of that mm-hmm. going in there. But I think a lot of it um, has come from outside of existing left wing structures, mm-hmm. outside of existing kind of left well maybe not left wing ideas but certainly the organisations of the left haven't produced something mm. um, you know like Extinction Rebellion um, in this country at least um, ever before and I think it's it's important I think to understand why that's developing why that's happening um, why it hasn't happened why it hasn't come from kind of the Marxist left and I think the really important part of it is you know that the, the environment hasn't been on the agenda for many many years um, so I think it's, it might be important here to discuss a little bit about Hugo Blanco mm-hmm. and his kind of movement through the uh, initially the kind of Peruvian Trotsky's left and I think you know the Argentinian um, maybe left you have to really correct me <laughs> if I get these, these wrong because he has a very very interesting long life as detailed in your, in your wonderful book um, kind of his move from some of these kind of you know his initial kind of Marxism through to the kind of eco-socialism we live, uh, what he he kind of um, is a proponent of today. Would you mind? Yeah, could you talk a little bit? On yeah, that? I mean, Hugo Blanco is a huge topic, and oh, um, absolutely bless him. He was in exile and thrown out of countries, and um, the kind of narrative is very complex. Mm. Um, so yeah, to start at the beginning, I could probably do like several hours on it. <laughs> concise. So Hugo Blanco was 
born in the Andes, mm-hmm. of mixed you know, Hispanic, indigenous heritage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and at the age of 10, I guess this must have been sort of like 1944 or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he came across the story of a local landowner who had physically branded, mm-hmm. you know, First Nation indigenous person, yeah. so he became very engaged with, you know, kind of indigeneity. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a dictatorship in um, Peru at the time Mm -hmm. and his earliest activism was school strikes (laughs) to get rid of the principal who'd been imposed by the right wing dictator Um, and there's continuity and contradictions so he um, a lot of his family were apriests Mm -hmm. sort of at the time left party but swiftly moved to the left Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. doing lots of activism and um, you know he was very kind of engaged with his brother Oscar and they both mm-hmm. went to Argentina and became agronomy students mm-hmm. um, so the sort of agronomy the agriculture, the yeah, ecology yeah, has been yeah. big um, Ugo um, you know um, was got kind of more in, got into sort of Trotskyist politics because there was the Guatemalan coup in 1954 mm-hmm. so that's like United Fruit Company calling the CIA in because there's going to be some mild land reform Mm -hmm. and of course that was the um, you know the Guatemalan coup radicalised Shea Um, so in Argentina there were various kind of leftist groups agitating and Hugo came across a demonstration with Trotskyists saying we have Mm -hmm. to arm the workers and the peasants Mm -hmm. and from then (laughs) Trotskyism and um, you know he dropped his agricultural studies saying that you know if he stayed in agriculture he'd end up working for landowners yeah. um, worked in a factory I think it was being Argentina a meat factory yes. meat packing factory um, not, I, he has been have been more vegan in recent years <laughs> um, and eventually he was sent back by the Trotskyist organisation to Peru and he organised in Lima and he had to get out of Lima because the, he was involved with a massive demonstration against Richard Nixon I think oh. who was then the vice president so he went back to Cusco, was trying to organise with trade unions, and did interesting things like unionising um, the kids who were selling newspapers. Oh, right. And what eventually kind of started the whole kind of thing in the Andes off was that he had an encounter. He was held, I think, by the police. They were holding three Campesino indigenous people as well mm. who'd been protesting against a very, very cruel landowner. And Ugo and these three guys recognised themselves from union meetings. So it's interesting this crossover between trade union activity mm-hmm. and peasants. And they really headhunted him. They said, um, you know, you speak Quechua, which we speak, mm-hmm. but you, you know, you've got some legal knowledge. Um, and they kind of took him off. They found him a horse, and he <laughs> rode up into the mountains. And um, he talks about how um, they wanted him on the kind of the machine printing off leaflets all the time Um, so what happened there were very complex situation but you had agitation for land reform the landlords would then murder the Mm organisers the police would back up um, the landlords so what you had was the indigenous people arming themselves Mm. organising so you have a kind of dual power situation And in a sense, it's kind of victory from defeat because eventually you ended up with a very small group of people, mm-hmm. um, gun battles with the authorities, yeah. and Ugo was eventually, you know, captured. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but the events around that then um, sparked off, um, you know, uprisings and protest, and eventually in this part of the Andes, um, the Campesinos, the peasants got land rights, yeah. and that then led to a whole very complex process and contradictory process of land reform. Yeah. So. Ugo, um, you know, is in prison right through the 70s. Not a good decade to be in prison. No, I can imagine. Um, and then you had the military government. There's a military government, but a left, in at least name, military yeah. government. They said to him, we'll release you if you support us. He, with his normal humour, said, actually, I'm quite happy in prison. I'm not going to support you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when they um, pardoned other indigenous leaders and peasant leaders... They couldn't leave him in prison, um, so he came out of prison, um, and then got back involved with, you know, union activity and land reform and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, was too hot to handle, so um, one day went to the pharmacy to get some headache pills or something. Mm-hmm. I have to check with him what they were, um, <laughs> and was taken off and put on a plane to Mexico. Right. And then from, I think he, he currently lives in Mexico, I could spend quite a long time on his travelogue, I should have to socialism <laughs> um, But he then went to Argentina, um, where he'd been active, but you had a, a military right-wing government, so he was put in prison, mm-hmm. um, he was exiled to Chile, and then he was in Chile during the coup, mm-hmm. and what saved his life was as a Trotskyist, he was critical of... Allende's government, mm-hmm. so escaped being on death oh, lists. I see, I see. And then, you know, right through the 70s, had kind of periods of exile in Sweden and would come back. So, um, you know, he, he, you know, kind of started off very much with kind of Trotsky's concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where his politics are now, I mean, he's in some ways been, you know, his son, um, Oscar would say he's been was radicalised in a green direction mm, by mm. the Zapatistas in yeah, Mexico because yeah, yeah. later on he was um, in exile in Mexico because both um, the Shining Path and the state security had put him on death lists mm, mm, um, you know but as time go, came on he became more concerned with ecological struggles mm-hmm. and what happened? what's been happening in Peru whether it's you know, indigenous in the rainforest mm-hmm. or whether it's people resisting big mining yeah. is you have lots of community struggles mm-hmm. which are bound up with environmental struggles yes. so it's people very much in the, the sharp end of it yes yeah yeah and I think that's something that's really really important um, in terms of like I think you know, from, from the eco-socialism getting from Hugo Blanco and looking at environmental struggles now is that they are so bound up with the struggle of the community and that's something that with the ecological struggles here we have it very in a very small way with fracking yeah but i think some can sometimes take quite a conservative yeah bent some of the fracking things are kind of a not in my backyard rather yeah. than a general yeah. you know i just don't want to have my water poison which is a, a very a real real concern nobody should want yeah, to have yeah. water poison but there's a very you know i'm quite happy to live my my standard life under capitalism as long as the extraction isn't happening on my doorstep um and I think this is something that's really, really important. And, and uh, you know, with things like Extinction Rebellion, there's a very much a discussion of, um, you know, how do we cut? We want the state, you know, where we're doing what we can. You know, our, our thing is to bother the state enough through mm. mass arrests and through, you know, disruptive activities to get the state to do something about mm. it, to, to, to do what it said it was going to do in the Paris Accords. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's very different to 
the kind of environmental shocks you have kind of at the you know where extractive industry is happening where you know land is being destroyed and the way of life of indigenous people as well is being completely destroyed by logging and it has been obviously for the last 400 years um, and this is something I know that the Zapatistas drawn very heavily you know the, the history of indigenous resistance again you know which is also a history of ecological resistance mm. I think this is a a, a a really really important thing in the sense that you know the the Capitalism's war on the environment, and you know this, you know this thing to accumulate, 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 is also a war kind of on 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 the the bodies of the working class, yeah. you know, and and in and on the uh, the the life of the working class. In the same way, you give up your labour, you you know you you give up your labour every day. You go into work and you do that, but you know it takes a massive toll on your body, which you ha- has to be reproduced every day, uh, which often there are lots of stuff involved in that, particularly the work of women, you know gendered work that goes on into reproducing labor day day in and day out um, but that through our work you know that that even the ability to reproduce ourselves in in a um, well in a way that is is allows kind of human flourishing mm-hmm. right? you know, the flourishing yeah. of the human of, of, of you know our ability to do things which is constantly the goal at least that you know that that, that is put forward by also yeah. by kind of capitalist media capitalist propaganda you're unable to do that because your water becomes so your air becomes harder to drink you know, your abilities to actually be in nature to relax to you know spend your free time um you know, not only is it ero- your time is eroded because you have to work more and more and more, but nature around you is is eroded. And I think there's a, an interesting thing in terms of so how do you how do you how do we do things like connect this kind of broad idea? Um, you know, the things that people in like Extinction Rebellion talking about. We need to decrease emissions. We need to change our life. Actually, then with the resistance, say extractive practices, mm. with actually the kind of I think. There's a very interesting thing in terms of you know what we, well, in, we, what we term kind of environmentalism, things like recycling being a really important part of that. But actually, how do we then square that with the kind of global scrap industry? You know, the global industry of scrap, which comes from um, recycling, that China has now essentially put a massive, you know, uh, kind of messed it up in a really big way because they used to take 90% of the world's yeah. recyclable materials. Now, for the last year or so, they've been saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to take only the very best stuff, the very cleanest stuff, because it's having such a big effect on our environment because the recycling industry and turning, you know, plastic into plastic pellets, um, getting rid of computer waste has a massive impact on local ecology and local environments. So how do we then, how, I think a really important question is, how do we unify these things? How do we unify these analyses? How do we unify these struggles? Because, the, you know, the Chinese state now has stopped it. So you have the whole of Southeast Asia kind of, you know, being drowned under massive boats of waste that because, um, well, the state and regulatory institutions aren't as strong as they are in China, are being disposed of illegally, are being disposed of in a way that is polluting massive parts um, of Malaysia, of the Philippines, of Vietnam. Um, there is a kind of there's this kind of very and I think something that I picked up in in your work and also with your work on Eleanor Ostrom there is this kind of um, and and kind of her work on the commons is there's this kind of local um, approach with the commons which is so important and like you know her her work on actually that democratically beyond kind of the state beyond the market people can democratically come together to manage their manage the environment and manage the kind of production in their own locality but of course we also live in this kind of huge you know the capitalist behemoth which spans continents 
and where kind of the actions of say the Chinese state have and you know the actions of the European Union, the actions of the American state, the actions of the British state, and the actions of companies, and, and you know this this system kind of grinding together in all its kind of contradictions and and stuff has massive effects that that work from the local to the global and then back down yeah. to the local again, and I think so. I guess kind of forming a question out of this or forming a point that we about fifteen emerging. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is good. Often when we talk, I feel that it kind of happens as well. Don't, you know, when we have these discussions, it's like we could go off in so many different places, but. I think one of the, a key question that I find myself coming back to is how do we go from how do we embody this kind of this 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 stuff that you know Zapatismo has brought mm. to us this kind of you know which indigenous struggles in the Andes and and, and across Latin America which in Rojava the environmental mm. and ecological struggles that are going on there mm. along with the you know the struggle for kind of you know liberation not just of the Kurdish people yeah. but of but of um, you know the kind of the whole democratic confederalism and you know the liberation of us all together you know um and women's liberation how do we bring that up and and you know i think this is a really crucial thing with you know the the increasingly globalized nature of capitalism which is so incredibly hard for us to get a grip on at that local yeah. level well that throws up dozens of interesting questions yeah um i mean my kind of project is not not to be prescriptive yeah but to try and promote a more sophisticated way of looking at mm, ecological mm, politics, yeah. because this is so important. You know, we have to be informed by very serious strategic thinking mm, mm, if we're going to have results. Mm, 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 um, and that's not always been a feature of green movements. You yes. have to grapple with all sorts of questions. Um, and the state certainly is something that we could discuss. Absolutely. If there's time, um, that yeah, if you look at, you know, Green Party, Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, the, the basic analysis tends to be quite statist, yeah. that you're going to be elected to the state or appeal to the state, yeah. and okay, there's other things going on, so Extinction Rebellion, talking about citizens' assemblies, mm. formulating demands, um, but you know, we need to be really questioning the nature of the state yes, in yeah. all sorts of ways. Um, you're also talking quite a bit about reproduction mm. and it yes I think the kind of formulation is that the reproduction of capitalism yeah. um, challenges the reproduction of humanity mm. which is a problem and of, of course what I'm very conscious of I um, was really inspired by the Young Marx film yes, which is yeah, a great yeah, yeah, film and yeah. um, what it does is it puts um, you know Mary Burns at the centre mm. who was Engel's partner and gets forgotten and she was a working-class Irish woman mm. in Manchester. Yeah. And what's interesting with Engels is one of the earliest kind of things he wrote was the condition of the English working class. Yeah. And that's absolutely about how the working class are assaulted by environmental damage in the yes. workplace. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm not one of these people who are really interested in lineages. Mm. I think we generally need to throw lineages away. Yeah. But it's interesting that when you do have the Marx and Engels, they're very centrally concerned. Um, I think one way of practically and theoretically knitting this kind of mm. local and global together um, is maybe more awareness of imperialism. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. there's a lot of awareness, and certainly with Extinction Rebellion, that in an abstract way, capitalism demands this kind of blind accumulation that destroys mm. nature. Mm. But we should then look at the particular place 
that England has had in global mm. imperialistic systems. Yes. Yeah. And um, you know, I think one thing that Momentum have been doing, which has been really good mm. and positive, is they've been having a campaign, I think, against Barclays, mm. who've been funding coal extraction. Mm, mm, so mm. what you find is projects around the world where people are being displaced, giant mining products, uh, product projects, very ecologically destructive. Yeah. And they're being financed in Britain, organised in Britain. Mm. And um, you know, I think it might be, unfortunately, again, it's sort of Leninist eco-socialism <laughs> where you say the weakest link is British imperialism and the banks. Yeah. But nonetheless, as something which is very practical, we should be really looking at what's happening in Britain, which is directly funding destruction right across the planet. Absolutely. So, you know, what I've certainly been concerned with is internationalization of our kind of local action yes yeah and how you kind of build links so certainly you know I've been very blessed to have had contact with Ugo yes absolutely. and I think it's recently been the, the 10th anniversary of the, the Devil's Elbow massacre mm -hmm. so what you had 10 years ago in the Peruvian Amazon was um, Alan Garcia had auctioned off mm -hmm. lots mm -hmm. of the Amazon for oil and coal extraction and ADZEP, who are the Federation of Indigenous First Nations mm -hmm. in the Amazon, organised and were very militant about stopping that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can kind of look at these struggles, defend these struggles. And, yeah. um, you know, I think what's interesting in varied ways about the Zapatistas, I know less about yeah. Ugo's experience in Peru, similar things in the Philippines, and Rajivara, Rajivara, yeah. what's happening yeah, yeah. in the Kurdish project, is that you have militant projects which are kind of committed to um, you know the left anti-capitalism and um, women's rights um, you know kind of radical democracy yeah. holding territory organizing yeah. and we have to look at how we can interact with them here mm. um, you know certainly not in terms of telling people what to do I think on the British left we can never tell anybody what to do we <laughs> have to have a successful revolution and then be anything, really. Um, <laughs> then, then be apologetic for another two hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, there's big Kurdish communities in Britain. Yeah. Um, you know, with that, you know, people involved that sort of ecological consciousness. And as we know, we've had um, people from British communities going out and supporting Absolutely. the revolution, and then coming back and being criminalised. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, recently we've had the the hunger strikes. And, yes, you know kind of solidarity there mm -hmm. so you know I think you would you know that it's possible to flag up big theoretical questions yes. um, but maybe there's some kind of practical action which if not obviously common sense is you know with the Kurds and ecological structure mm. and imperialism where we can constantly be kind of researching seeing what's going on and then having interventions to support these struggles I think that's really really important and I think I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were when you were one of the things to brought up was kind of the experience also of West Papua, yeah, and the kind of the imperialism question there. I mean, the obviously the Indonesian state has been occupying uh, West Papua for um, I think it, at least it's kind of post war fifty sixties yeah. time um, after the end of kind of Dutch colonialism in 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 that in the kind of that area of the world, you know, kind of Java, Indonesia, pa Papua, West Papua, Papua New Guinea, um, and. One of the uh, kind of things that sustains this is that the Indonesian state gets a lot of its tax revenue from a gold mine that's in 
in West Papua. And so you have the immense environmental destruction which is affecting West Papuans, with also this kind of, it's been described as a slow genocide of the West yeah. Papuan people by by the um, Indonesian state through kind of straight out murder, but through also through kind of displacement, um, through uh, kind of, again, many, many Indonesians who, you know, are kind of, you know, have been put into in the same way kind of you know, there are links with Palestine in terms of illegal settlements in in, in Palestine um, in the sense of similar things that have been going on there so there is this kind of this ecological dynamic in the sense that this you know this extractive industry um, that you know yes benefits the you know this kind of I guess sub-imperialistic arguments as well mm -hmm. that, that go and you know that benefit the Indonesian state um, in a big, big way, provides a motor, and also you know provides strong support for the continued colonization of West Papua by the Indonesian state from you know kind of imperialist imperialist governments and imperialist you know um, you know imperialist financial institutions and this kind of Western mining company. I can't remember if it's a Dutch mining company. Uh, you know, it's been a little while since I've read on this example, yeah. but I think you have this whole mess of you know uh, of of, of very contradictory things happening in these, yeah. these kind of these kind of things that then actually you know it's um, the, 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 there's a necessity of grasping the totality, yeah, um, but intervening in a specific exactly yeah. yes exactly and and that kind of that kind of dynamic these, these contradictions not being not being kind of just hard ones that we cannot overcome yeah. but actually these are productive and that we have to yeah. through our interventions you yeah. know that that's one way of grasping this kind yeah. of totality. And I think you know, in in terms of the English case with imperialism, you know, we were talking about this before, and you know that we, apart from the little bits of fracking that we have, it's very different to America. That since we kind of stopped producing, you know, mm. coal and oil in this country, mm. you know, we have we offset a lot of our energy. You know, since we've mm. deindustrialized to a large extent, we we not only offset the, the labor that used to be done, you know, the, the kind of productive labor that went into producing commodities in this country, but also our energy production comes from elsewhere. So we, we have offset the environmental destruction of industry and the environmental destruction of extractive industry. Um, by, by destroying other people's by destroying Exactly, exactly <laughs> destroying other people's environments. It's the same thing with the kind of this, um, the recycling and how recycling and how it's often you know it, there's this global industry in recycling yeah. yes it's you know recycling as an industry you know it's, it's you know, it, we're trying to do something good by not throwing stuff into landfill mm. but also you know and uh, landfills also don't fill up Britain they fill up you know the, well, yeah. the middle of the ocean but they fill up places that are all over the world so I think it's a very interesting that we have a movement such as Extinction Rebellion growing up here. We should talk about Extinction Rebellion, shouldn't we, more? We should, we should. I think, you know, I'm, I mean, one of the things with Extinction Rebellion, I think um, its strategy, which I think, you know, so I think, well, to dial back a bit, I think similar with Occupy, and I think, like I said at the beginning, similar with Occupy and Extinction Rebellion kind of took the left by surprise. Yeah. There were movements that kind of, yeah. you know, sprung up quite spontaneously. Yeah. You know, there's that word that is kind of, I think, spontaneous, <laughs> which, you know, it, it, at least in the English translations of Lenin come up, which uh, the academic Lars T. Lee says there's a lot of pro problems with, you know, the, the, the directly translation of, you know, many different words in Lenin to the one word of spontaneous. Yeah. But for our, for our purposes, you know, this, this movement, and say with Occupy, outside of the structures of the left, um, and, you know, the left not knowing what to do with it, I mean, in terms of um, Extinction Rebellion, it's... 
there has also been a negative in the sense a negative effect on certain parts of the left in the sense that it's essentially shut down green and black cross legal support yeah. it's it's run the green and black cross has yeah. run out of resources yeah because it's had it's been trying to do arresting yeah. support i mean green and black cross has been going for a long time now yeah. doing a legal, legal and arrestee support for left movements um and the extinction rebellion has kind of shut it down by having so many people arrested um and there's been criticisms of that use as a tactic yes, um uh, in general, and you know, I think the the Crown Prosecution, the London Met, wants to send you know, one thousand four hundred people's cases to prosecution, which mm. is a lot. And anyone who's ever been through kind of a, a case of prosecution or had to go through any legal legal struggles um, with the police or with the court system, it is a it's. Um, I mean, you know, it, it works quite well as repression because it's a very very horrible experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's that's one of the kind of criticisms of Extinction Rebellion. There's also the kind of idea that, I mean, one of the things I'm really glad that we've been picking up on in this in this discussion so far is, you know, how environment and class link are linked, and you know, from looking at Engels's you know kind of work way and looking at Hugo Blanco and some of the other things that are going across around the world and imperialism as well, and that 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 kind of a class analysis. Yeah, I think that's partly partly a product of the fact you know the offshoring of our environment, you know, of our extraction and our a lot of our production. Um, that you know, it's very hard to talk about. You know, well, actually, like we can't talk about black lung, lung black lung, black lung for coal miners. Mm-hmm. You know, because we don't mine coal really very much. You know, the last the last pit was kind of closed a couple of years ago, but you know, we've not been doing that for a long time. It's very hard to talk about the effects of industry on our bodies mm-hmm. and on the working the condition of the working class. However. The fact that we use so much energy here, the fact that, you know, we're in South London, which has got some of the most polluted areas in the country, yeah, if not, you know, in the Western world, yeah. um, particularly we're in Deptford, we're near the London, uh, the, the airport, um, London City Airport yeah. as well, with incredibly high levels, dangerously high levels of pollution. Um, so I don't what are your kind of views as, as kind of someone who's been involved in the eco-socialist movement for a long time? Um, and well, or you know, involved in this and, uh, and and has a great deal of experience and knowledge about this. What are your thoughts on kind of you know? I'm not I'm not asking you to do a you know a, a denunciation or, a, or whatever. And, and, and I don't think that's you know something you're very into anyway, as, as we've talked. But what are your kind of thoughts or what you know some of the problems this throws up and perhaps some of the solutions yeah. as you see it? Um, I mean, I think in one way, Extinction Rebellion has been a very successful project. Because basically, mm. what they were trying to do is engage in getting attention. Yes, um, and I think many of us criticising them in various ways. Not talk about how am I criticised them. Mm. 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 Um, we're maybe not recognising that this is about making a massive amount of noise mm. and really getting climate change on the agenda. Yeah. Um, and they've been tremendously successful at that. Absolutely. I mean, all, there's obviously been the sort of David Attenborough, you know, kind of broadcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I go to go to work. Um, you know, my colleagues want to talk to me about climate change, yeah. um, and I think it's. I mean, that gets into a whole kind of debate about attention and materialism mm. and tropes and images, and how on the, the broad left we you know we generate attention and mm. we communicate, mm. Um, mm. you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think I probably didn't really kind of understand that looking at them. I've not not been involved with them yeah. other than I'm supporting them on social media. Mm. And I kind of, um, you know, Roger Hallam, I knew from the University of London Green Group way mm. back mm. in the 80s. Mm. Sorry, I'm being name dropping here. <laughs> um, 
And I kind of, my kind of understanding of Roger is he's got a particular form of Christianity. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of very engaged with theology. Yes. I'm not yeah, a yeah. Christian, but I'm very engaged with, with theology. Mm-hmm. And I was been, I must admit, slightly kind of dismissive of his, his take. I don't know whether he thinks this is fair. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I'd kind of look at it in terms of Christian theology, which might seem quite a strange way of getting at mm, it. Mm, mm. And my kind of understanding was that he's got a tradition of kind of bearing witness, yeah. sacrifice, yeah. maybe fits in with things like Christian worker. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're kind of putting your body on the line, um, you know, kind of calling attention to things. Um, you know, we could look in another context about how that fitted in with the hunger strikes and Irish Republican traditions. Absolutely. That would be another topic. Absolutely. Um, and on the whole, I, I felt slightly critical of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think there's different ways within Christian theology of doing it. I mean, I've been really interested in um, divestment in the churches. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so I was slightly kind of dismissive of that kind of way of framing it. Yeah. Um, and also, I, um, in the 90s, I was involved a little bit in the anti-Rhodes movement. So there was okay. a big anti-Rhodes movement, um, groups like Earth First, which surprisingly took quite a left turn in Britain. Yeah. And we're talking about West Papier that involved with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you seem to have a movement which in some ways was, was kind of leaderless, although yes. you know, there's the debates around hierarchy, but seemed to have a very, very sophisticated political strategy. That mm. What you had was in the 90s, people taking local issues of motorways going through often working class communities, rural areas, building coalitions with all sorts of different social groups, organisations, and basically kind of derailing this massive motorway building programme, you know, interacting with trade unions, doing all sorts of interesting things. And that seemed to be a much more sophisticated strategy than Extinction Rebellion. Yes. But as I say... The Extinction Rebellion has been very much about putting it on the agenda. Mm. It's been successful in terms of putting it on the agenda. Um, but I think there are various kind of criticisms. So the legal criticisms, which I think you can see fit in with my suspicion that there's a particular view of self-sacrifice. Mm. Um, you know, there are practical and moral problems with that. My um, friend Mark Hudson, who's very much an analyst of social movements... Yeah is sceptical that it's sustainable. Yes. So, um, you know, there are various... And again, you know, I've got other comrades who'd say, um, you know, why are you disrupting transport? What you should be doing is disrupting banks. Mm, mm, so mm. I think there are a whole series of ways that it can be criticised. Um, I do view it, on the whole, as something which is open. Yeah. And that if people have got criticism, they can join... Extinction Rebellion strategy groups mm. and f- feed strategy in. Um, I think another kind of th- where it's striking me because I'm, as you know, I'm very kind of interested in like Marxist centre and base building and what's yeah, going I was on there. Thinking this was a good place. Yeah, um, is um, Boots Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know whether listeners are aware of Boots Riley, but Boots Riley. Um, I think he kind of fronts, doesn't it? The world. I know it's controversial, but the world's greatest Marxist rap group <laughs> I mean there are some controversies about who it, but um, the coup which are his, his band yeah, yeah, are just yeah. amazing yeah. Um, and he comes from a you know kind of non-dogmatic kind of Marxist tradition 
in the US is interested in kind of intervening culturally yes. so um, there's been the film Sorry to Bother You yeah, yeah, so it's yeah, a great when you're looking at the front of the Metro newspaper and it's like a Marxist filmmaker is on the, <laughs> you know this is his film's on the front cover and I know around you know I'm not very knowledgeable about around base building but looking yeah. at what's been happening in the States well we, there's been I think a big congress or conference for kind yeah, of Marxist yeah, centre yeah, yeah. um and he's kind of looked at um, kind of Occupy, mm-hmm. and I think we can maybe look at Extinction Rebellion in the same way. So he was involved with Occupy, yeah. so he's kind of Oakland, California based, yeah. and he's obviously somebody who's, who's very deep thinking. And he was saying with Occupy, what you have is spectaculars, yes. yeah, yeah, but yeah. what you need is also long-term community building. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one of the maybe problems with Occupy is there, there wasn't a particular demand. Yes. And one of the things that has been very strong with Extinction Rebellion is there's been a kind of central demand yeah. and a central thing to kind of put climate change on the agenda. Mm. And what other criticisms we might have that's been successful. But I think what's interesting is to say, how can we actually build capacity yeah. and build movements for the long term, base them in the community. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, there's maybe a... a, a kind of pivot between the kind of notions of base building which maybe small numbers of us talking about in the UK um, and you know that might feed into Extinction Rebellion as something which is more long term Um, and again just looking at law and and legal support that one of the things you're hopefully building is legal capacity yes yes um, you know and community support I think that's a really really good point and it's something that I, I really agree with and I think it's also with the kind of local global kind of contradiction as well um, and the kind of you know class environment you know um, kind of things is that I don't think you can have a global you know you, it's very difficult to have a global effect you know we say if you are a revolutionary right we are you know we're on the left we're not very influential in, in, in many ways. We're, we're quite small in yeah. Britain, the US, you know, in other places it's slightly different, but in, you know, we are marginalised and that's yeah. because, you know, um, there is an idea of wanting to change quite fundamental things about yeah. the world, you know, to dethrone capital and the bourgeois state um, from the dominant position and build something um, that is kind of in control of the working and oppressed people of the world. And so you know that that's that's it's a it's a minority position, uh, but it's also there's this kind of it's a minority position. However, you know ultimately in the interests of the majority of people who are there, and I don't think you can dethrone the state, dethrone capital, mm. without having a strong local base to do that. Whether you're an anarchist and you believe in kind of uh, you know we will place with a you know with kind of decentralized network of, of uh, communities, or whether you know. Whether you believe that there is some kind of uh, a state afterwards, and I think there's a there's a certainly a very productive or, or important discussion to be had. I mean, at the moment we're all at the same point, right? We're all you know limited power, uh, ability to move on things. And I think some of the stuff coming out of Marxist Centre, this is why I think our first podcast was on kind of the base mm, yeah. tendency, which was was interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I really enjoyed. Well, I'm I'm, re- I'm really glad, and I think you know trying to bring some of those debates. Here and also kind of some of the organisational materialism thing and like your your I think um, you know this this idea that actually lineage doesn't really matter. It's yeah. like what are we going to do about it? What are you yeah, going to do yeah, now? Yeah. 
And I think actually in terms of basing our things in the community, moving, you know, looking at communal, uh, you know, communal issues, particularly the environment, but also the whole host of issues that mm-hmm. play on that. And this is one of the things I think in Rojava provides a really important model yeah. is because you have the ecological and, you know, the women's liberation, the, you know, I guess what moved on from a, a national liberation. Mm. You know, and I think one of the things a, a very close friend of mine says, and this might sound a bit like kind of, you know, Marxist-y, Hege- quasi-Hegelian kind of, kind of garbage, is that, but, but I think is actually when we look into it, it's very interesting, is that we overcome, we overcome contradiction by grasping the totality of class struggle. Musin, if you're out there, I'm quoting you on our podcast. <laughs> Musin is he's written for us, as, and he's a kind of a, a valued contributor and a close friend of mine. Um, and I think you know part of the base building is you know in in we have you know there are shards of that totality in the places that we live. Right, we're uh, you know in, in Deptford at the moment um, on, on Deptford High Street. You know the cars are kind of driving by. There's an airport. Not you know in in London, one of the big you know one of the it's biggest financial exactly 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 one of the biggest financial centres in the world. Um, great deal of Poverty, working class poverty, in in London, massive issues around both race and gender. You know the the issues of the um, of the way the police works with black and ethnic minority communities. The way also something that the you know unfortunately not much developed from it, but something that the the, the nascent Black Lives Matter movement in the UK mm. wanted to bring up. And when they there was the action, quite heavily criticised action, but I think ultimately was a, an important link to make was that you know the city airport is mainly causing extremely high levels of pollution yeah. in um in an area which is you know affects mainly black and ethnic minority yeah. people of color you know who live in these areas and so there is a you know, the, the environment plays a part in this you know kind of the, the you know this grand global totality but has massive effects on on the way we live here and i think the way that we grasp that is by doing you know doing this this movement you know and i think this has links with you know workers movements that are growing mm-hmm. up you know we, we were talking earlier before the podcast started about the iwgb and mm-hmm. you know working in cleaners my you know i have family members who work as, as cleaners who work mm-hmm. you know and, yeah. and you know actually the, the the it's very bad for your health to be a cleaner yeah you know, the physical effects on your body with working with these chemicals all day and also the physical labor that is involved is, yeah. is a really um it's very harmful and you know more and more is coming out about harmful this is to to workers and laborers um, I think there is one thing. I think there's a, a really interesting couple of episodes of, of um, a podcast in America in, in, uh, by some people in Appalachia called the Trueblue Workers Podcast. Mm-hmm. Firstly, about you know how much the mining industry is devastated, mm-hmm. and how you know, for example, and that the massive amount of wealth mm-hmm. was funneled directly out of the Appalachian region. You know, had you had you had miners being paid in company script, so you could only you weren't paying dollars, you were paying company scripts. So you could only pay for it. And I think there was a really good, um, there was a really good uh, video produced by Means TV with um, two of the guys from the Trilby Workers Party. You know, one of them said, "You know, my grandfather was paid in script until the '70s. You know, it prevented wow. intergenerational wealth being accumulated. You can't pass anything to your kids if you're only you only can only buy stuff in the in the company the shop. Store, yeah. But now, you know, water systems are completely devastated yeah. um, in in this part of the world. Massive deforestation, mountaintop removal, which has just removed massive things you can't build anything on because mm. it's just you know you, you, you the things just sink into the ground. There's a prison there which I think has the name Sink Sink. Yeah. You know, because it just is sinking into yeah. the ground because you can't you can't do anything. So you have a massive amount of environmental devastation, but also in America, I think there was a really interesting episode of their podcast in the sense that one of the people said that you know that that almost changing away from extractive industry in the U.S. would amount to um, 
a kind of a political and economic confrontation similar to that which precipitated the civil war. Yeah. There are such dominant interests, and this yeah. I think should, is really important for us as revolutionaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you know that that, that and, and particularly when we look at the civil war, the very revolutionary elements of yeah. the civil war in the U.S. Obviously, you know, ends up you know the more reactionary yeah. elements, you know being in place and that's how American capitalism is, yeah. is able to develop but but you know you look at the you know the massive you know not just coal mining but the massive oil and fracking boom that yeah. we're seeing in the US the massive entrenched interests and these are not just you know big banks big companies these are you know workers you know there are communities yeah. who are sustained on extracting oil and gas from the ground yeah. in the US so you know, and and with all the kind of you know the the, the massive racial implications, gender implications. Mm. So as revolutionaries, I think we also have to think of, you know, if you're going to you know building these bases, but also ultimately you will be clashing against the state and Absolutely. to to create you know there's talks about the Green New Deal yeah. and doing this from this kind of you know uh, a very kind of class compromise kind yeah. of thing. You know, that we can produce new economic yeah. jobs, new economic industries, but actually if there's going to be a meaningful change. Yeah. Not this is not I and I, I don't want to sound like a kind of you know revolutionary adventurist here. Yeah. But the challenge the challenge to how how powerful yeah. the economic interests and we only have to look at this in West Papua in Palestine as well yeah. the massive ecological yeah. destruction that's going on there. You know, in in Latin America where environmental act activists are murdered on a daily yeah, basis. That these you know, the environment people who are destroying the environment, they aren't gonna go down easy. No. They don't they you know, our arguments no. that we can make in the gov you know, government, please will you regulate this this stuff? I mean, unfortunately, you know, this is mountaintop removal came out because of regulation in the mining industry, right? Mm -hmm. and this is one of the things the Trilbilly workforce, you regulate the mining industry, they find a way around it, it's yeah. 10 times worse for the yeah, environment. Absolutely. And that came from environmental re regulation. So I think, you know, and this is why class struggle environmentalism and, you know, the struggle for national and kind of racial liberation, struggle for gender liberation as well are so, and, and you know, all other kind of liberatory struggles are so important here because you know, ultimately, it's that totality of class struggle where we, you know, bring some kind of unity together yeah. to wage a revolutionary struggle against these things, which you know, who, yeah. who will have no um, no qualms about murdering you in your bed, right? Yeah, about absolutely. murdering you in your yeah, sleep. Absolutely. And so I think you know we have to look, I think, at the scale of that, and that's not, an, a, I think, a message you can yeah. Extinction Rebellion can kind of take out. No. But I think there is long term, and it's not really, I think, even a message you can go into your community and, yeah. and start saying that. But as a long term organizing goal, and as, you know, as, you know, we have to be thinking about this as activists, as, you know, if, if there is to be, I think, you know, leadership again is a, is a very debated term, but these are things we have to be thinking as part of a strategy yeah. that ultimately there is going to be a clash, that there is going to be a clash, and how do we prepare for that? Yeah. Um, sorry, I've kind of gone on for, on a long load <laughs> Lots of tangents. Of very good things. Lots of things, you know, and, and I'm really here to listen to you yeah. speak. But um, I'm always happy to listen to you. You're always full of great thoughts. Well, right? well, well yeah. um, I think Hegel will avoid for the moment. I yeah, think I, yeah, I think Hegel. I, um, I just confuse myself uh, and you know everybody I tend else to sort of have like theology, and it's like Hegel, <laughs> and then actually the other theology is Spinoza, right? Like, yes, I noticed this um, in your work, kind, kind of. of Standard, but that's that's maybe another another day. Yes, yeah, yeah, um, another, another podcast maybe or, you know. um, or in the park or yeah, um, yeah, 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 probably better. Yeah, I mean to to kind of start to bring some of this together. Um, you know, when we're talking about London and environmental struggles, it's just the fact that you have air pollution, mm. and it's entirely uncontroversial that mm. this is killing thousands of people mm -hmm. every year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And you know, just 
you know, I'm, I'm not in Green Party politics at the moment, but you know, I'm kind of thinking of Green Party members on the Assembly, and they're doing a good job on mm. that, and that's that's kind of part of the struggle. And I think what you're kind of bringing me back to is, um, I mean, I think there's also another debate about um, the left mm-hmm. and extractivism mm. and production yeah. um, and looking at the kind of experience of kind of Russia and China and, you know, then coming up with kind of states which are based on lots of production extractivism. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we need to be talking about different models of development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, of course, this isn't something which is a sort of sin of the left. It's coming mm. out of a historical experience where you know, right across the spectrum, it's kind of progress, productivism, extractivism. Yeah. Um, so obviously, put you know, questioning that, I think, is interesting. Um, the, the kind of power thing, I think, is so crucial. Yeah. So, um, you know, my kind of recent projects have been the, the kind of Ostrom staff yes. and the Hugo Blanco staff. Um, and Ostrom is a big topic. Um, yes. But where she's coming from is certainly not on the left, but is, you know, as a political economist, saying there are environmental problems. Mm. Some of them come down to kind of how we use resources collectively. And she's done this amazing work looking at, you know, commons. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually saying that traditionally economics, we've had the kind of binary of the state and Mm. the market, Mm. 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 but there's actually a potential kaleidoscope of forms of governance lots of different ways that communities can organise and what I felt has been kind of good with her is in the very best sense she's been scientific she's not been scientific yes, yeah, yeah. that science can be used in earlier days that God was used or sometimes used nature to close down a debate yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. but a kind of open scientific rigorous investigation of like how you build trust how you build cooperation if you've got collective ownership what works and what doesn't mm. work mm. Um, so to me, she was doing like a kind of really important job that generally Marxists have not done. Yes. Or if I look at Bookchin, a lot of the kind of Bookchin stuff and the Ostrom stuff is very similar yes, in yeah, terms yeah. of deep democracy, diversity, confederalism. Yes. But she was using all sorts of analytical tools, whether it's kind of ethnography, case studies, game computer, theory, and uh, stuff like that. Game which I theory think is really interesting. Very yeah. interesting. And all this kind of, often stuff like enthusiasm very much on the right, yeah. and all being used to say, how do you promote cooperation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very scientific analysis, very useful, and, um, you know, good, good, fun human who we miss, everybody yeah. loves here and there, very open. But what was kind of missing from this, I suppose the sort of cliche is Marxist analysis, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but what was kind of missing from this was an analysis of power. Yeah. And in many ways, her stuff is very, very useful if you have contestation and conflict and how you build power and mm, how you, mm, you mm, fight. And there's mm. lots of practical lessons. But the contradiction she was coming from wasn't looking at capitalism, imperialism, and so on. And that really kind of was, you know, where I think somebody who's really done this is, is Ugo. Mm. And Ugo, you know, right from being at school... Um, you know, he's 84 now and he's publishing Lucha Indigena, doing yeah, a very nice yeah, tour yeah. around Britain. Um, and of course, what was great fun was he came to Goldsmiths and we got, he was really keen to have Justice for Goldsmiths workers to speak at his book event. Yeah. And he's like so engaged with political struggles now. Absolutely. And he's, 
Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that he wrote which is really good about how you practically intervene. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these struggles around the state and violence and non-violence yeah. and so on can be very kind of abstract. Yes, yes, yeah. And, you know, what he's very good at doing is saying, look, we haven't decided to, like, arm ourselves and have a revolution. <laughs> but there was a logic of a circumstance where we'd want to kind of get reforms, yeah. get better conditions for people who are workers and farmers. Mm. We were oppressed. And then we had to organise to resist that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's very good at the, the kind of practicalities of these things and putting them in a you know kind of real life context. Yes, yeah, and I think that's it, it, it's really really important in the sense that actually like I mean I suppose it's the James Con- Connolly almost is, and I yeah. think it's a very dialectical poem. You know, we yeah. we don't want much, we only want the world, and yeah, it's true yeah, because yeah. we don't want much. You know, we don't want to be dying from air pollution yeah. every day. You know, we don't want to have to go to work and be treated like crap and have little to no money to show for it yeah um and and that has you know and and but you know from somebody above us making millions and millions and millions yeah. of pounds you know going from it you know we don't want much but actually there is the the the, the, the implication that, that feeds from this that where we go from this i think there's this almost snowball effect that you know and and and, and there is this kind of you know the the interrelation of reform and revolution yeah, which rosa yeah, luxembourg kind of yeah, talks yeah, so wonderfully yeah. about that you know that that you you have to start off you know you're not even start off but there, there there has to be some idea of you know you know we do fight for reforms we do fight mm-hmm. like we fight for the eight hour day yeah. you know even though ultimately these things can be co-opted and i think this is this is kind of like you know the something that i and, and we in and the lever editorial group are kind of thinking about is you know building power from from the ground up but with a broader so you know the tactics and i think this is one of the areas that i'm critical of base buildings i think that it's an excellent tactic yeah but i think you can't substitute that tactic for a, for an overall strategy yeah, yeah, yeah i think it's a wonderful thing and you if you're going to be making change you have to be making changes uh, you have to start by making changes in the lives of, of the mm. people who you know we wish to empower them like the yeah. masses of people the working and oppressed people of the world right you know working with people because you know you don't and i think you don't, uh, you know, you don't come in, and I think part of the problem is you come in and say, "We are the Marxists, we are the leaders," you know, and we will show you the way to. Yeah. And everyone's like, "Well, actually, you're not," but <laughs> you're not doing. You, you don't not understand us. However, you know, I don't think we get over that that kind of that very bad practice by by not by simply saying this this will just happen. You know, this kind of Paulo Freire stuff. You know, of, of there is a dialectic, there's yeah, a dialectic yeah, interaction yeah. between teacher and student, between leadership and the masses. You know, even Rosa Luxemburg saying, you know, the masses are constantly producing their own leaders. I think personally, there's a lot in Leninism, actually. uh, There's a lot of this stuff in Leninism about how you manage. And and that's another conversation that I think that can be had at other times. But often that's something we've written a lot on. And, you know, bringing some of the the lessons of of kind of Leninist practice and and kind of updating them because of the failure of much Leninist Leninist practice in the UK in particular, but but in in the Western world. and I think it's part of a, you know, a, a vanguard, if we can use that word, of, of also, but of political, really, by using that, I mean political organisation, political mm-hmm. leadership, is to be able to, um, uh, to be able to kind of, you know, manage these kind of contradictions, to be able to manage this mm-hmm. kind of interplay between reform and revolution, to, you know, to to build things so we can move, so we don't just have, you know, a struggle that burns itself out with yeah, state and rebellion, but Which we're able a- to big risk exactly which yeah. is a massive massive risk and I think it's really important to identify that but that we can then you know go from you know from the bottom up and then back that you know from the people to the people as, mm, as you know uh, as Mazidon mm. may have said we're coming up to the hour mark 
I think wow. we've had uh, an excellent an excellent conversation. I feel we could do another hour really we could. Of, of of discussing. Um, I think our, I think you know um, I don't know even if I can bring out some kind of summary points and ending summary points um, from there. Um, is there anything you'd like to say to kind of you know top top off this well, discussion? Hundreds of things, really. I, I mean, I think always interesting to bring up James Connolly. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. in this part of the world, he's somebody we really should be looking at. Absolutely, his absolutely. Um, so I think again, one of the kind of things I've had from Ugo is the the kind of interplay between you might have electoral politics, direct action, mm. um, you know, at points very intense resistance. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and what I kind of felt with Ugo, I mean, Ugo's very non-dogmatic, mm. um, and I think in some ways he's kind of critical of some of the Leninism of his youth. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and also his argument, which I think we'd very much agree with, is that you might have particular arguments then, mm-hmm. um, but times have moved on. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things that I've really felt with him is he's kind of, you know, very pragmatic, very pluralistic. Mm. Um, gets involved, um, you know, learns from communities. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that he had was from his kind of Marxist education in Argentina. You know, he had a notion, a series of kind of concepts and perspectives, mm. such as kind of dual power mm. and the realization that eventually you'd be faced with violent resistance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was able to use these flexibly enough mm. Mm-hmm. to really kind of build a movement. Mm. So I think what we need to be doing on the left is kind of thinking what are the useful concepts that we can take, Mm. apply in a particular situation. Um, And certainly I think what what, what I'm interested in with the the base building is that maybe we could kind of build some Marxism which is more creative in Britain. Also I've I've said to you um, what I found attractive about some of the the kind of essays that your your group have, have come up with is the idea that the you know what's been happening in Labour with Corbyn yeah. is on the whole, you know, extremely positive. Yeah, absolutely. But what we then need is something beyond that. Yeah. Um, and this, this is this is, I think, the big question, particularly at this moment in time. That I think, you know, beyond the environmental and stuff like that, that is the big question of, you know, the the kind of the wild years, the rapid growth of Corbynism is, yeah. is, is coming to a halt, and it's it's stuck very much on this this issue of Brexit, where the, the movement has been unable to to I think come up with really a, a uh, what, what we might call a um, principled proletarian position <laughs> on on the brexit debate um, and you know I think this, this has really shown the weakness in the British labor movement mm. you know the, the kind of you know the trade unions and the labor party mm. and the weakness of the British left where it's tried to intervene in that you know through mm. Corbynism um, you know, and also the the kind of weakness of, of, of you know positions like my you know my position and the positions of Lever and other people who kind of wanted to use this and develop something beyond that. And yeah. I think we're coming to a point where you know that the, there needs to be we need to be putting our energies into obviously you know this is still a, a really it's still a movement it's still a strong and and still is vital and you know we may be seeing a Corbyn you know li, you know Corbyn led Labour government you know coming up in the in the next you know, six months twelve months eighteen months who knows. We also may be seeing a very revanchist right-wing Tory government coming up, so you know history moves on. And whether it be a Corbyn kind of government going on, whether it be a right-wing 
Tory government, the, the you know the, the march of environmental degradation, the yeah. march of capitalist exploitation is continuing apace. The the also the um, the kind of decay of of, of British capitalism, the dilemma yeah, of British capitalism, yes. which is fundamentally behind the, yeah. the EU debacle. Yeah. Will continue. So, yeah. so actually, finding a, a building a revolutionary position beyond that, I think, is crucial at this point in time, and having it directly linked to to kind of you know working class and oppressed communities in Britain, within links between those communities, uh, you know, and working and oppressed people of the world, is so so vital and so important and something that um, I think we have to take a non dogmatic view in building yeah. and and. That's what I think I hope we can do with this yeah. project. I mean, I, I, I think the, the kind of thing is quite often on the left, we have debates about people who should have done X or Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not in much of a position to intervene. No. So I think the questions of like capacity building, yes. and then how you know people with different perspectives on the left mm. can cooperate on practical projects are key, because it's not having a sort of abstract correct answer. Yeah. It's building up enough power so we can... So we can do something. We can do something. So we can do something yeah. about it. And I think on that note, um, I think it's time to end the end the podcast. Thank you so so much, Derek. Thank you. Yes. It's it's such a pleasure, and um, it's such a pleasure to to kind of you know, to know you and to have these discussions. And also thank you from from the group to you for your for your support and um, you know for your engagement over the kind well, of you and the you're doing. doing really interesting stuff, which is provoking thoughts. So good. Thank you very much, and thank you everybody for listening.